0: There's all kinds of great stuff happening at the men's retreat. I'm at, you know, um, I've been in the past couple years, and uh, the, so this week, this is, you know, I, I, whenever I speak somewhere else, like I go to speak, I speak at camps and stuff like that for high school students and stuff. I, I never get invited back, <laughs> and I got invited back to speak at the men's retreat. So, I'm excited about that. So I'll be there on, you know, speaking and stuff. Very excited about it. You know, one of the things that Mike mentioned about our men, our men's ministry is that. You know, we have a lot of buy-in, and it's different than in other campuses, really. I mean, it's like—and and not to feel superior, because although that is an, one of our most important goals, is that we are the most important superior thing of all things. No, but, but just to give you a sense, there's a lot of buy-in from the guys on our campus about being a part of our men's ministry. And if you're looking for a way to connect, you're like, you know, I don't really have any way to really find a way. That is such a great way. The men's retreat is a great, great, great first step. And, you know, you're like worried, are they going to make me eat raw flesh and sacrifice an animal and spend the night in the wilderness in my underwear or something like that? Yeah, but that's not a big deal. I mean, it's just one night only, and you're fine. No, it's not that at all. Um, very, very cool. Down to earth, guys. Want to have you be a part of it. It'll be great. Um, also, want to let you know, there's so many great things happening in our church. Um, when, you know, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and um, I told you how we are partnering with the local school. It's a mile and a half away. That is a, an underperforming school that we just have, we have so such high hopes for. I think it's such a great, a great school. But um, it is, it, on June 22nd, we are going to unleash all of you. A 1,000 people, you heard me say a 1,000, but so it's you and your kids and everybody else to actually be a part of something really significant in the community. And we say all the time around, there's lots of things we say, but one of the things we say is that, you know, we're in the community for the community, that our, our goal isn't to simply be a fortress in the community where people can hide away from stuff, but it's that we would actually unleash people into the community to see it changed. And the response we got, I just threw out one announcement. of The response we got is unbelievable. We're talking with the principal right now. There is so much, there's so much enthusiasm and momentum building for this event that we don't have a clever title for it. We're just calling it Serve Day. And uh, we need your help. You need to be a part of this. You don't, want to, you don't want to be like, oh, I have plans on June 22nd. Yeah, you do. It's happening from 1 p.m. on over at this school. Now you have plans. Change your plans. It's going to be awesome. You do not want to miss this. In your bulletin, you got a little yellow flyer. Um, and it says cleverly enough on it, Serve Day here's the deal. Take that out right now. You can take it out, hold it. You're like, I'm not going to take it out. I, you're going to make me do stuff. I know you're going to do stuff. That's what it's about. So you're going to take a look at this. There are a number of opportunities that are on that thing. If you're interested, doesn't mean you're signed up to be the person who does. You just, you're just interested. Let us know. Fill it out. Let us know. And all of the, a lot of people were already emailing me saying, hey, I was a teacher and I can help. And people saying, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a welder. I can do, I mean, it's like, I got so many people saying stuff, but fill that out. Place it in the offering box. We'll get in touch with you and put you to work. It will be one of the coolest things we do as a church community. Um, So you do not want to miss this on June 22nd. That's the weekend after Father's Day. So dads who are like, what am I going to do? You know, like, this is your opportunity to, like, do something awesome in the community too. Bring your family. It will be great. All right? Cool? Some of you are excited about that. Okay, good. There we go. Good. It will be awesome. All right? So serve day June 22nd. It's going to be great. Um, It is an all play. Okay. So we've been in a series called What If? We're looking at these two basic questions. And it hits kind of two people in the room. If you are new to church, if you're looking at, you know, kind of investigating Jesus, not sure about the church, whatever that might look like, um, you're kind of wondering, if Jesus said all these things, like what if, what if everything he said was actually true? Like what if, that's, what if he's not just sort of a mythical storyteller or something? Like what if he's actually for real? And what if all the stuff he actually did was actually true too? And you're just trying to see if that's even possible. But for the rest of us who have already acknowledged that, okay, that's probably true, I think I'm in on that, I believe that, what then does it look like for us to live like that? What if we lived as if it were true? Not just what if it's true, but what if we lived as if it were true, which is really the life of faith we're talking about. And so, the, to give you an example, what it would look like—what it would look like if we lived as if it were true—that's June twenty-second. Just to give you a sense, that's one slice of what that looks like. Just in case you're wondering. All right, but these are the questions everybody wrestles with: Is this for real? And if it is real, then what does it mean? So as we get into it, it's been a great series, had a great conversations with a lot of you guys. Listen to this, let's pray together and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Father, we are, um, we're grateful that you would, um, you would bring us here. We're grateful that, um, that we get a chance to, to see people that are no different than us, that are trying to figure out how to follow you, trying to figure out what it might mean to follow you, what it looks like to love other people and to take that seriously. Jesus... Um, Sometimes, which we often face, is this reality that we um, we believe that you want our our religious practices, our attendance, but you really want us over everything else, Father. As we often talk about, that none of us has everything together. You still want us, Father. Might that be known today? I know that there's pain in the room. There is suffering, and there is loneliness. There is regret and there is fear and anxiety. Father, might you, amid all of whatever we talk about, might you meet us and remind us that it is us whom you want. It is us whom you came for, to bring to you. So Father, for just for a moment, would you allow that reality to sink into us in a moment of pause, that you came and that you want us? Father, as much as we're able, as much as we know how, we, uh, we turn ourselves over to you. That you might do work in us that we cannot do on our own. And so, Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, um, like I said, really good to be with you guys. So good to be together. And um, if you want to follow along in our message today, there's a little outline in your bulletin. You can follow along in there. We're going to be beginning in Luke uh, chapter 6. And uh, beginning of Luke chapter 6 and verse 1. But, um, you know, so if you want to follow along, there's a bulletin in there. Or, an you know, outline in your bulletin. You can follow along there. You can also, you know, look at the screen or whatever else. By the way, if I'm a little bit, like, not—I know you, like, usually know that I'm not— not everything's lined up when I'm, like, I'm a little crazy. I have been sick, and I'm going on vacation tomorrow with my wife, only no kids. And I cannot be sick for—yes, you can clap for that. Yes. I have been clapping. Uh, but— I. <laughs> I cannot be sick on this vacation. I have, it's like we have not gone away in a very, very long time without kids for an extended period of time, and I'm like super preoccupied with not being sick. I've had so much emergency. I'm, not surpri- I'm surprised I'm not literally glow- glowing right now. So you can, if there are things you want to ask me about, people ask me, how can I pray for you? That's something, okay? Um, so I apologize if I'm a little little bizarre. Have you guys ever made the mistake of, uh, of walking into a place, uh, like a department store uh, that has a uniform, and you just accidentally were wearing the same uniform as the employees? Like, I had that experience where you walk in, and you're standing there, and people ask you questions. And the first one's like, that's funny. I wonder why they thought that. Then you look around, and you're like, oh my gosh, they think I work here. And then you kind of, and then an evil thought kind of creeps in your mind a little bit. Like, not evil, but a little bit like, I feel like I should mess with people. Like, I just, it's too easy, and I'm here, and they can't, what are they going to do? Well, there's a group of people, um, maybe you've heard of them, called Improv Everywhere. And they, they they actually took this to like they do this often, but they um, they actually took 80 people in Manhattan, well uh, yeah, and they, they took them in a Best Buy, all wearing blue shirts and khaki pants, and just want you to see it. So keep my mic on. i will do a little running commentary with this, right? Here. Check this out. This is this is improv everywhere. It's pretty fun. Don't say that you work there, but if a customer asks you for help and you can help them out, then do it. If an employee asks you what's going on, just say that you don't know anyone else and it's just a coincidence and you're wearing their exact same (laughs) store (laughs) uniform. Now notice, these people aren't doing anything except standing there. That guy says hi to the fellow employee. Hi. Yep. (laughs) Helping a customer out. (laughs) Now watch the panic of the employees here. All people are doing is wearing a blue shirt and khaki. Just watch the panic. Security right there in the yellow. Listen, call 911. They're wearing blue shirts in our store. Look at this. Now they have the police here. NYPD is in the house. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to arrest anybody for wearing a blue polo shirt. Thanks for calling. We're out of here. You guys are on your own get him get him look at that and that's it all right you can end it right there <clears throat> okay we get up. we shut down. okay now is that unbelievable people people just they just walked around in blue polo shirts they have another one it's actually kind of pretty funny this one's actually better captured on video they have one where these guys just all go to Abercrombie and Fitch of all shapes and sizes and ages these guys and take off their shirts and walk around <laughs> it's awesome now the whole premise here is that people's Sort of adherence to who's in charge here, authority stuff, who has power. They get a little bit unnerved when there's some kind of sense that, you know, maybe these people, are these people for real or what are they doing? They're wearing a blue shirt. Now what, what else could happen? Call 911. I mean, there's nothing they were doing except standing around and helping people. And when they asked, could you leave, they left. That was it. But people got so unnerved. Now, at the time of Jesus, about 50 years before and about 50 years after, there's about a dozen or so people that would essentially were wearing a blue shirt in Best Buy, walking around claiming to be someone who has a particular kind of authority. And the, the religious people at the time were really kind of on the lookout for people who claimed to be this person called the Messiah, who was supposed to rescue Israel and the whole world. And they're on the lookout for this person, these people, and every sort of these, these sort of movements would start and stop and all kinds of stuff. And when people started showing up, doing and acting these kind of messianic ways of living, this kind of assuming the rescue was, in, was at hand, the religious people started to freak out. And Jesus what, is this person who's now acting and behaving like one of these people. And they're wondering, looking at Jesus, are you just a guy in a blue shirt or are you really the person? In fact, they're actually so suspicious, the religious authority at the time is so suspicious that they keep saying, you can't be him. You can't be the one who's God's chosen person. And so they constantly have conflict. And Jesus is, consi- I mean, over and over again in the, in the, li- the, the account of his life, He's messing with people who are in power structures, who are wearing the blue polo shirts or whatever else it might be, who are employed by a Best Buy, so to speak. He's constantly messing with them like, I think you guys have got this wrong. You're missing the point. All of the things that you're holding on to about your ordered life of religious sort of practice, all of that stuff is kind of missing the point. And of which, of course, all the people who are wearing the uniform look at him and say, well, if you're telling us we're doing it wrong, it must not be you. You can't be the guy. And so it's in this context that we kind of look at the story here that Jesus is messing with the rules and the rule keepers all the time. And so here's where we are in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says this. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of the grain, rub them together, and eat the kernels. Now, anytime you see the word Sabbath in Jesus' life, ministry, sort of stuff, what he's got going on his ministry, generally what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to mess with the notion of what the Sabbath is. Now, just to give you a couple side notes. The Sabbath is like part of the Big Ten. The Ten Commandments has the Sabbath in the top, like, depending on how you read it, like the top four or five. It's like right in there. This is like, man, the Sabbath, you've got to keep this day holy, do no work, whatever. Now, the question is this. As the, the faith of people who followed, followed God grew and began to expand and began to, look, they began to look at what it all means, people had to ask a question. Well, what constitutes work and what constitutes rest? I mean, what do these two things actually mean? Because this is really significant. There's even to this day, some, I have found a list of 39 things that are prohibited on the Sabbath, things that you can't do. It depends how strict you are in adhering to, you know, the, the law here. But listen to these things that are prohibited on the Sabbath because they're deemed work. Planting, plowing, reaping, gathering, threshing, winnowing, sorting, laundry people, grinding, sifting, kneading, cooking, shearing, those of you with sheep, scouring, beating the wool, dying, spinning, which by the way, dying. you know, that's my son, my, my five-year-old thought that when we were talking about dying Easter eggs, he came home, I think I told you guys this, he came home from preschool and went, we killed eight eggs today, Mom. <laughs> he just was like totally serious about it. Didn't know that dying and coloring, same thing. I was trying to explain the difference between a sail, like the sails on a sailboat and sails where you buy stuff. Didn't understand that yesterday anyways. All right, so spinning, warping. Again, remember, I'm a little sick. Spinning, warping, making two loops people who tie your shoes (laughs) weaving separating two threads tying untying sewing tearing trapping slaughtering flaying curing smoothing not sure what that is scoring measured cutting writing erasing building demolition extinguishing a fire igniting a fire applying the finished touch and transferring between domains that just means you take something from your private like your private sphere it's like having a garage sale you can't like move it from the private world into the public world these are all the things that are prohibited. Now, Jesus' disciples, these guys, are walking through a field, and they take the tops of the grain. They rub it together, and they have like a snack. They're moving from one place to the other. And there are these people then who observe them doing this. And the question is, well, is that, are we, are we snacking here, or is this actually work? Because are we, are we allowed to do this? Now, here's what happens. Verse 2, this is what happens. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Oh, they're harvesting. That's harvesting. harvesting. They're harvesting. They're walking through the—see, that har- counts as harvesting. It's almost like smoothing. We don't do that. You know, what, whatever it is that they're doing, they're not supposed to do that. And they raise the alarm bells. Hey, you guys, people are—they're harvesting. Now, there's a provision in the Bible that says you can walk through anybody's field. It's in Deuteronomy 23. You can walk through anybody's field, and you can pick the heads of the grain. Don't take a plow and, like, actually, you know, harvest the grain. That's, like, not—that's not cool to just go into someone else. Oh, I'm just taking the—you know, you have to, you can take a little snack. There's another provision that says if you're going to walk through someone's vineyard, you can take the grapes, but don't bring a bucket. So these guys are walking through, and they're just having a snack. That's no big deal. But the Pharisees say, wait a second. You're breaking the law. That's not how we operate here. This isn't what you're supposed to do. Now, Jesus answers these guys, and he's the master of this kind of Q&A. When they ask him questions, he just, he's like unbelievable in what he says. So verse 3, he says this. Jesus answered them, have you you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful for only priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Now, Jesus tells this story about a time. He's like, remember when there was that time when that law got broken? There was like a law we have, and it got broken. Remember that? And he he invokes the name of David. Well, there's like three people in the Hebrew Bible that you just— they're like untouchable in their awesomeness, even though they were none of them were perfect. Abraham, Moses, and David. I was a big fan of the Lakers in the, in the eighty. I still am, even though it's like we just we we wait for the day, right? But you know, I'm a huge fan. Like, and when, I remember when I was in, like in in elementary school, in junior high, there were three guys. All of them are like top fifty NBA Hall of Famers: Kareem, Magic, and Worthy. Like nobody speaks badly of those three. Nobody. I don't care who you. I mean, James Worthy's on TV. He's not the best sportscaster. Yes, he is. Okay, he's the best. He's James Worthy. Now, Jesus goes. Remember that time David went into the temple, or went into to talk to the high priest. It was in the temple then, but he went to the high priest and he said, "Hey, I'm really hungry." The story actually is that David lied about what he was doing there. He was fleeing for his life from this guy Saul, who was presently the king. David's the actually anointed, chosen king of Israel, and he goes into the temple and he says, "Hey, we're really hungry." And, the, and the, the priest gives them this stuff called the showbread or the bread of the presence, which is this sacred symbol in which God's presence is made so the symbolize that he's with his people, a covenant with his people. And he gives this bread, which is only for the priests to eat, the Levites to eat. And he turns and he hands it to his buddies, and they all eat and they're filled. And Jesus is saying, remember when that happened, when we broke the rule? there's like David did that, and nothing, he didn't die, nothing happened to him. That's kind of like, remember that? And he says... Now, he says in this question, he's basically saying, is God's holiness in this moment upheld or is it violated? Did God, did something happen to God there? Did he kind of cave on his rule? Is he all of a sudden no longer holy because there's a little bit of a bend, even a break in this rule? Is all of a sudden, is everything undermined? Of course, they have no answer, right? And then he says this line. Verse 5, then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, which is a title Jesus uses for himself, it comes from Daniel 7, it's about, a title in which a human being would be anointed as God's bringer of God's future, so to speak, into the world. That's the title, Son of Man, and he uses it all the time to describe himself. Jesus then said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now he uses some incredibly big language there, Son of Man's big words, Right? And the term Lord is a big word because the only person who is the Lord is the Lord. And he's like, I'm the son of man and I'm the Lord. Now, there's only one person who can mess with the Sabbath. That's the guy who invented it. And so now all of a sudden there's like, what are you, not only are you, Jesus, you're, you came in here wearing a blue shirt and Best Buy but you're acting like you, you're the manager now. We, we don't do that. We can't, you know, I don't know how you think that's cool. I don't remember your interview process, but, you know, there's like, there's this sense here that Jesus is doing something that's incredibly scandalous. Mark's account, the gospel of Mark, has an account of the same story. At the end of the same story, Jesus tells this story, he says this way, verse 27. He says it, then he said to them, the same audience, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is is the Lord even of the Sabbath. Now it's the same thing. He's just saying this. God had these rules for people, not before there were people. In other words, it would be like it, to, to sort of what Jesus is throwing in their face. I heard this analogy. I think it's great. It's like it's not like there's a couple people. There's a couple in a house going, "We should have kids so we can have someone pick up the toys." Do you understand what I'm saying? That what, what God set up His law. It was not always there, and then he had people so he could have people obey them. The law is intended to benefit the people. In fact, even the word the law, translated most often in the Hebrew Bible, isn't just the word law, it's the word Torah, which is something way different. It means something more like instruction or direction. But these are the, this is the way God's people who had been set free from captivity in Egypt would now live as his free people. So Jesus is saying the Sabbath, this law, was made for people. It was designed to help them, not the other way around. Now, there's all there's so, there's this kind of, some of you are like, this is so great. All the laws, Jesus is just throwing them out right now. That's so great. We can do whatever we want. It's like anarchy. This is so cool. We can, I love this. This is the best church ever. This is great. I love this. Now, let me tell you, Jesus' own opinion of the law is really important you understand this because before he can undo it all and kind of rework it, you have to understand how he actually sees it. So Jesus is challenging the Sabbath. He's challenging the people who are really the holders of the way in which we, are, that we, you know, we keep the Sabbath. These people called the Pharisees. And Jesus you know, calls people to this kind of light. Look what he says in Matthew 5. Do not think, this is Jesus speaking for himself, that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, what he's saying is, what I came to do is not erase stuff that's been done before. I came to see it to its full end, the way that it was intended. The law has a purpose, and I want you to see what that purpose is. I have not come to undo everything. Some people are accusing me of trying to undo all the laws because the people I hang out with and when I do certain things and all, who I heal and what they, all that stuff, But that's not true. What I'm here to do is uphold the law and to fulfill it. Now, the question is, if he's all about this fulfillment, what does the fulfillment of the law actually look like? If he's not going to get rid of it, what does the fulfillment of the law look like? And Jesus says this thing, this incredibly controversial, it's like one of the most important things he says. And it comes after the thing we think is the most important thing he says. So listen to this. This is super important, too. This is Matthew 22. Jesus is asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, verse 37, love the Lord your God with all. You should circle the word all if you have a pen. The word all in Greek means all. Your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. There's your first commandment. This is what our aim of our church is. How do we, how do we love God? That's, like, that's what we're trying to figure out. Follow Jesus, love God. That's what we're about. And then he says this other thing. He says there's something else that goes with it because this isn't really measurable. You know, it's not you can just, well, you know, I, I love God. I just, I just love him and you can, it's a secret love I have and no one can really know about it, whatever. And then he kind of throws this curveball on the people. And he says, well, there's a way to measure it. Here's what it is, the second part of it. And the second is like it. The word like actually there means something like defines or clarifies or makes clear or gives evidence of or shows. The second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, now there's a way to measure this. So you have love God and love other people, but then there's something else he says which is so incredibly crazy. And it's this: all of what we're about to do is about to get very messy. And those of you who love neat little categories, myself included, are going to be someone who goes, I'm uncomfortable with what happens next. Here's what he says. Verse 40. Matthew 22, verse 40, all, which of course means all. The law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Which means everything that we know from the Hebrew Bible, he tells his audience, everything that we know is centered around these two things. If you read the Hebrew Bible and any, you know, the, the Old Testament, you read the Hebrew Bible, you read that in any you know, particular way, I mean, this is all that his audience had. If you've read that and you didn't come to the conclusion that the, either the point is somehow the combination of these two things, love God and love other people, then you've got to read it again because you're reading it wrong. All the law, all the prophets hangs on loving God and loving other people. If it doesn't, you're, you're reading it wrong. Now, this is... This is where it gets a little bit insane. Because what this means then is there's no exception ever in which someone should ever be treated with unlove or non-love. Every circumstance and every situation calls upon people to be loving. There's never a justification for that's reasonable to be someone who is unloving, no matter how we feel about the the law, the rule the religious practice that's been violated. Wow, people shifting in their seat a little bit, a little bit nervous now. This is, you can see why people at the time who were wearing the Best Buy uniform saw Jesus come in and started to feel a little bit uncomfortable because all of a sudden the neat categories began to get a little bit unstable. Back to our story in Luke, verse 6. On another Sabbath, now you know Jesus is going to mess with the Sabbath again. He went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man uh, was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus goes in. There's a guy with a shriveled hand. The word looking actually is more closely resembles, in Greek, resembles the word spying. Like they're like, ooh, here comes Jesus, shriveled hand. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. He's gonna, you know what's going to happen here? He's probably going to try and heal him. <laughs> idiot i mean he's like they all have this impression right here because now look at how blinded they are these are people who are so excited that they can try to play jesus compassion against them because he might do work which is healing But we don't have a category for it. i didn't read that on here there's no you didn't hear me read the word healing but yet there's jesus he's in the he's in the synagogue he's gonna do some teaching he's gonna see that guy his compassion is gonna get the best of him it's gonna ruin him he's gonna try and heal a guy can't wait to see what happens because then we can all jump on him. Because if everybody sees now that there's this guy violating the Sabbath in the synagogue, we got him. He's done. He's exposed. He broke the law. God's guy can't break the law. They're watching him, hoping that his compassion gets him busted. These are people who, are, who in Jesus' own mind, are so, incomple- so completely missing the point. And so he challenges them in this reality. Here's what we get. Verse 8. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Now you have to imagine how incredibly uncomfortable this guy must feel. I mean, he probably knows the tension. There's the looking at Jesus. There's the shriveled hand guy. And they're like, what? He's probably, what? Why is everybody? Okay, I have a shriveled hand. I mean, what, like, lighten up. Let's start listening to whatever he's teaching. I mean, and then Jesus says, why don't you stand up? And the guy stands up there, and Jesus said to them, now he's speaking now to everybody in the room. Not just the the Pharisees, these people who are trying to catch him, these Pharisees. Remember, not all Pharisees are like this, but the ones that are there, he's looking at at them, but he's looking at the whole room. There's a plural you coming, which he's talking to everybody, in which he says this. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, everybody, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Now, they don't have an answer at that point because now they're kind of like, they're kind of trapped. Is the Sabbath now something which we can do good things even if they're work or is the Sabbath to be protected at all costs? Remember, these are people who are looking to catch Jesus doing something in compassion such that he might be busted. It's almost as if these are people who worship the religious practices that they've adopted adopted more than they worship God they have made them so incredibly important that they can't even see what God really wants for them, right? In their own midst. What's the greater good? The Sabbath being upheld or the man being healed? Jesus asked them, verse 10. He looked around at all of them. And he said to the man, "Stretch out your hand." He did so and his hand was completely restored. And the Pharisees jumped up for joy. High five, Jesus. And they all celebrated with a massive feast. Verse 11. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law were furious. And began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Isn't this great? A man is healed in our midst. We could have never hoped that God would be so good. No, they're furious. The word furious is the, literally the word that translates "anoia" in Greek or annoy us. Like, and it, it's like some translations have the word a maddeningly blind rage that they could not see anything. It's like that time when you've ever been in my minivan with three kids on a hot day. Our AC went out in our minivan this past week. Oh, that was so fun. And there are three kids, and the music isn't loud enough, or it's too loud, or it's the wrong song, or the snacks have fallen, and there is screaming and fighting, and there's like cannibalism in the backseat, and that's all happening, and there's this screaming, and I just go, oh, I can't take it, and no more yelling. And of course, I'm yelling at the top of my lungs. No more yelling! We're rolling the windows up. No, we'll die. I know. You know, like. (laughs) That's the kind of rage that they feel. We got to figure out. I I can't take it anymore. He keeps healing people and busting us for this kind of stuff. We thought we had him. He turned it around on us. And we're embarrassed because our religious practices are being called into question. Our Our every kind of everything we know about how we're supposed to do stuff is being challenged by a guy who doesn't belong here. We need to figure out how to catch him, to get him, to get rid of him, because this is incredibly frustrating for us. Annoya. Now, what Jesus is saying, brace yourselves for the messiness of what I'm about to say. What Jesus is saying is love occasionally demands. Love occasionally requires that we break rules. Some of you are like, I don't even need love to do that. I got that down, man. yeah i'm all about love okay now listen now you're like some of you're like this is a slippery slope i can't believe you just said that where are we going this church is just pff, here it is this is the beginning of the end we might serve people but we're dead okay this is just bear with me here just stay with me for a second i know what you're thinking but every one of us understands this point i told you guys last week my daughter fell she had to get staples in her head you know which is it was it's pretty awesome and you know, like, there's a lot of blood, and of course, I got this is a typical dad. Got to the hospital, and I show up there, and you know, Molly's got like this ice pack on the back of her head, and you know, I did. I have not yet seen the extent of the damage of what's actually happened, and she's kind of sitting on Amanda's lap, and she's looking at me, and I'm like, "How are you?" And she's totally coherent. She's like, "Fine." I mean, she she mostly it was just you know she's like fine. And I'm like Amanda, she's fine. Let's get let's go home. We'll have the doctor take a look. You know, we have friends, the doctor, come on over. And she's like, she's like, "Really, you think so?" I'm like, "Yeah, listen to her. She's fine." <laughs> And so Amanda's like, I don't know, I'll just stay and just see it. I'll have them check her out. And I'm like, okay, whatever, you know. And so, of course, all of you dads are like, I would do that, but I'm not saying that. You're looking at your wife like, I would never, I would, ne- I would we are there for, okay. So I go home and I take my two boys and Amanda, because, you know, like my daughter wants to be with my daughter, or be with Amanda. And so I take my two boys home and then Amanda calls me and says, yeah, they put five staples in her head. I was like, yeah, that's what I was thinking I would do at home. I got a staple gun. It's not you know, a T-40, just chunk, you know, no big deal. Now. When Amanda's describing, I wasn't there when the accident happened, Amanda's describing how she took Molly to the hospital. Molly, you know, anytime you get a head injury, it's a lot, but if one requiring staples, it's like a horror movie, (laughs) how much blood's coming down. So she's driving, she's driving through every red light, every single stop. She's like, that's a suggestion. She honks and waves, and people look at her like, how dare you? How dare you? No, she can't explain to them, my daughter's bleeding, she might die. No, you won't die, sweetheart, I just want to make them, you know, she can't say that. She can't scream that to anybody else. All they look at her is go, oh, look, rule breaker. What's not what we do around here? We don't, we don't, we don't do not don't that, you know? So she's driving as fast as she can, violating all kinds of speed laws for a person because love required it. You know, um, I'm actually kind of a rule follower. I would actually probably be the person if I was driving where Amanda would be like, go, go, and I'd be like, wait, left, right, <laughs> left again. Go, you, why don't you go? Because if we get in an accident, that will take way longer. And I don't want to, you know, like I'm just totally, and I don't, you know, I'm not that good at this stuff. But there are times when I break the rules. My son, my oldest son, is, uh, um, he's a, is, a, is a really good drummer. He's, you know, 10 years old, and he kind of is awesome at it. And I played drums in college in a cruddy little band, and he's better than me now. Like, he, and I, I mean, it's like, whoa, he's really good. He's just kind of got a knack for it. So I took him to see the Killers in concert at the, at the Pond a little while ago, which meant we had to have a late night, He's only 10 years old. So we had to go to this concert, and we sat in the world's worst seats, but it blew him away. Like, you know, there's, this, there's a part in the, one of the songs, you know, Are, are, are We Human? Somebody of you know the song, Human. You know, are we human, or are we a dancer? And my son yells out, we're dancers! <laughs> All right. You know, like, so into it. It's a, it's a Thursday night. The next day at school, he gets to go a little bit late. His sister looks like, what's that about? And I just go... She really wouldn't understand kind of what he needed at that moment, and I broke the rules for him. This, on coming up next weekend, I'm taking my family camping. Because you can't get a campsite on Memorial Day weekend, it's just impossible. So we're going we're to ta- go on Monday and stay through Tuesday, which means they miss school. And the kids are a little bit excited about that idea. Now, some of you who are teachers are like, don't you, if they, all education is progressive and they'll die, they're going to, they, everything's dying here. Okay. What's going to happen is they're going to thank me for that day, and it's what they need. Now, the rules were broken to accommodate a person. The rule, it also goes the other way. Around uh, leading up to Easter at Lent, we took our, our whole family. We just said, you guys, we're not going to do, you know, iPhone games and, you know, any screen, our old iPhones, whatever we have. We're just not going to use them for games. We're going to take away all the, the video games that we have in our house. and we, just, we, I did, we didn't throw them away or, like, burn them in, like, an effigy and make our kids watch or something. We just, like, took them and then put them away so that they're away now. And so for the whole time leading up to Easter, they're like they can't wait for Easter Sunday. And here's what we realized during that time, my kids. And again, I'm not anti-video games. You have to understand this. Like so, this isn't like my statement. All people in our church. This is just my own experience. My own kids started reacting so differently. Here's what they did with their time. My oldest son started playing Legos more and drawing. When he needed to do something, he went for a bike ride. But dad, I'm going for a bike ride by myself. Remember when we used to do that when we were kids? You guys, people do that still, I guess. So he went for a bike ride. The next day, he took his sister on a bike ride. The day after that, all three of my kids went on a bike ride or a scooter ride together around our neighborhood and just hung out together. And my wife and I looked at each other like, that's because they don't have a game here, video games here. Do we, do we really want to, we told them way they could have it after Easter. Do we need to change the rules on them? So we told them the rules are changed. But you made a promise, Dad, that we were going to have the video games. I know, and I understand why you'd be upset. Here's what I saw. Here's what I love. But dad, you, everybody's gonna hate because I can't, we're not, I don't get to do the video online. No, I know, I know. You have a reason to be upset. Dad, you don't understand. I do understand. I changed the rules. I said something and I changed the rules. And, And the whole thing, you know, is about me loving you. Goes both ways. Break the rules on behalf of people. People are more important than the rule and it is this thing that Jesus is challenging the Pharisees to understand that they cannot worship the religious way of life. They cannot worship their religious practices. They have to worship the one about whom those practices are intended. And he says, love God and love other people. If we can't do that, then the religious practices don't even matter. Jesus wants you. He does not want your religious practice. He does not want your devotion to regular attendance. He does not want your devotion to regular Bible reading. He wants you, your whole heart. He only wants those things insofar as they actually help you to get close to him. Now, it's my hope that you come here and that you actually find that that's a reality here for you. But the truth is all of us have a little bit of a love of religious practice. We all do. You know, there's a, there's a this maybe you can relate to this, there's a, there's a behavior that happens in the ancient world in which people would go out, they'd violate each other, they'd do all kinds of un- you know, unthinkable things to each other, and then they'd show up at the temple with the particular sacrifices that God had preordained for them to take there, and, well, here's this, you know, this goat or this ram or whatever else is that i got to take up here and make this sacrifice. And then everything's cool, right, God? Like, I did all this stuff I wasn't supposed to do, but I brought the sacrifice. We're good, right? That's how it works. I mess up, I bring a sacrifice, game over. We're all set. It's like a reset, right? right? And God looks at him and goes, that's not what i want here's what it says in isaiah 1:11. the multitude of your sacrifices what are they to me says the lord i have more than enough burnt offerings meaning i got enough barbecue happening of rams of the fat of fattened animals i have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats which is what all they're bringing all these things that are like hey forgive us god we know we did some stuff here's another ram he's like i don't want that verse 17 he says this learn to do right Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. In other words, he's saying, I want your whole life. You've been with with us for the past couple weeks. You've heard us saying this over and over again, that what God is after is your whole life, not religious practice, but your whole life that is rooted in the understanding that I will love him and love other people. That's it. He says, don't just kind of go through the motion of religious practice, and don't do it such that you go, God, I have done my religious practices for the week. What's in it for me? Did you not see? Some of us are here using the church in some way or another along these lines where we go, man, I really screwed up. I got to go to church. And then you want to say, shout out with your heart, God, do you not see me? I'm in church. We're good, right? Cool. Right now I can do whatever again. That's saying, no, I don't just want you to show up. I want you. I came for you. I didn't die for the rules. I died for you. I want you. I want you close to me. I don't want to just you, I don't want you to adopt a bunch of practices. I want you to love me. And because I so because I so deeply love you. Isaiah 118 says this. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. In other words, we can get this right. And I want you to be with me. Some of us on the other end of the spectrum, we have this this fear about those. Some of us had this moment of like a little bit of judgment. Like, yeah, people just show up and they use the church. I know who they are. (laughs) I know who they are. Let me just caution you who might have had a little inkling of that reaction. You see, when people love the rules, there's a sense that they love how they feel about having those rules. And it undermines everything. Here's what happens. There's a sense of self-righteousness that people have. It breeds self-righteousness, and it breeds hypocrisy. We don't need to be those kind of people. If you have a sense about, I am, look what I do. I do religious things, and I have seen people do things, and I don't like the way they do them. You have, it's, all of us have this already built into us. It's part of our nature. If you've been in church for a long time or not, if you've ever been to the gym and you watch someone else on a treadmill who's reading a magazine and just barely walking, and you look at them like, that's working out. <laughs> Let me show you what working out is, and you kind of speed walk next to them just to kind of show that's how you do it how's your magazine i can't even look down sweat i'm so much better than you i mean you have that in your head it's already there and if they stop you wait a full second till they you know like they're done with their little beep beep beep. you wait one more second like beep, beep 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 i yeah i'm just i went a little longer than you oh gosh and you hate them because they're in better shape than you anyways you know like you just hate them now we all have that tendency in our hearts to identify with our religious practices and call them out as superior to other people. And Jesus is saying, don't make those the object of your worship. Because if you do, you are only serving yourself. We're about loving God and loving other people. And so we're going to have a religious practice in this place that could, be, that could undo some stuff for you. I want to reclaim what we're going to do. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, the communion. And what that means is, what we're identifying with is, God, your sacrifice is for me. It is not for the rules. It is not for this practice. This symbolizes what we're going to do in communion, symbolizes what you have done, and I believe it, and I'm going to stop trying to impress you with my religious practices, and this symbol will not just be a religious practice. It will be something in which it identifies me with you, identifies me as someone who came, as, as you as someone who came for me someone who cannot possibly follow all the rules, someone who breaks the rules, someone who criticizes other people, I I need you because I can't do it on my own. So Jesus with his disciples, as Paul will later quote when he talks about communion, he says to them, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body which is given for you. In the same way he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, Do so in remembrance of me. Remember me. You look at the Bible, particularly the the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Over and over again you see God's people are people who are constantly being reminded to remember because they always forget. And so we have symbols to help us remember. What the Bible says is take a moment and investigate your own heart. Don't take communion because you feel like, I can take communion, and I, I did, and I want to make sure I tell all my friends or have a little bit. Don't do that. What's in your heart? Perhaps for some of you, as we talk about this idea of coming back and rece- coming back to, to God, that there's this coming now, we can settle this matter. Right now, you and Jesus, maybe we need a moment to settle this matter between the two of you, to investigate what's on your heart and to give that to him. It was a great opportunity to receive prayer from our prayer team and to write a prayer down in the prayer wall. But this is about remembering what God has done for you. Let's pray together, and then we'll take communion as a family. Jesus, we have um, so many bizarre, secret little tendencies in our lives. We love our own self-righteousness. We love the practices that make us feel like you owe us something, and yet, Father, you don't owe us anything, and yet you gave everything for us. And it is this communion in which we remember that you have given everything for us. That we might live, Jesus. Just in a moment, as we respond and singing, as we respond together as a family. Father, would you speak to us, such that we would remember we we don't have to create religiousness. We just walk with you. That you would give to us this kind of life, Father. Help us to see what's in our own soul that we might come to you without any secrets, without any games, without any judgments. We receive the gift of your sacrifice because it gives to us life. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.